Welcome to Coach House Talks. If I was, um, if I was to ask you a question, <laughs> uh, can you give me the answer, okay? Last, last Friday I got up in the morning and I got into my car and I drove to Birmingham. I arrived in Birmingham at 12 noon. I traveled an average of 50 miles per hour. Approximately what time did I set off? Go. You don't have to shout the answer out, just go. There should be sound on this. I travelled approximately 50 miles an hour, I told you that. And I arrived at 12. Nick. What time did I set off? Approximately. 10.30, that's pretty good. 9? 10? Okay. Um, now, alright, I'm sure that uh, if we used a bit of pure maths or we uh, had some lateral thinking that we'd be able to come up with an equation to try and give an answer to my question. Uh, remember the complicated maths questions we had last week from Becca, which was great. A truly wonderful example of how we can be fooled into accepting anything if the teacher is confident enough. Where did I start from? I didn't give you that information, did I? I didn't say that. I just said I got up in the morning, got in my car and drove to Birmingham. I didn't tell you where I set off from, did I? <laughs> you see, the whole point of us looking at the big picture of the Bible, the whole point of looking at that from everything that God says to us from the beginning through to the end is to make sure that we read and interpret God's word with the correct information. You see how we all made conclusions. We all jumped to 10 o'clock, 10.30, which is pretty good because I've been feeding you 75 miles since the start of the service. Well done, you two. But the truth is, I didn't give you all the information, did I? I kind of kept some hidden. But it didn't stop you drawing conclusions. It didn't stop you saying, well, it must have been 10, it must have been 10.30, it must have been, you know, you've obviously set off from home. And Birmingham's 75 miles, as I've told you. So, therefore an hour and a half travel time, therefore 10.30, if I'd set off from home. The trouble is, I didn't set off from home. So actually, the question was unanswerable, but without the information. <laughs> I know you knew that, Steve, because I told you that on Monday when I saw you. <laughs> so Steve actually had the information. <laughs> and I said... Don't say anything. And he didn't. So thanks, Steve, for that. So I'd like us to look at or see the lens at which we see Scripture through. Um, if we've got the correct lens, then when we can, we can open the Bible at any point in this book and understand what it's trying to say to us. Do you believe me? 
If you know what God is trying to say to you through his word, then you can open this book at any page and you should be able to interpret what you're reading with some understanding, some knowledge of what it's trying to say. Because it's always trying to say the same thing. Jesus. Jesus. Saviour. Jesus. And this is really important as we stand on the verge of opening the last book in our series. Revelation. Yes, it starts next week. Revelation is often avoided, often found confusing, and the source of much opinion and debate. And yet it contains at its heart the simple message of the rest of Scripture. It's all about Jesus. The beginning, the middle, and the end. Therefore, the lens by which we approach all Scripture is Jesus. Simple, isn't it, really? False teaching in the early church tried to assume a, a higher knowledge of that that was revealed to them in Scripture. The writers of the letters that we've looked at over the last few weeks are unanimous in a number of conclusions. But they were unanimous in their convictions. The convictions that the importance of Jesus' birth, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension to heaven they were absolutely convinced that all of Scripture revealed God's plan of redemption for his creation. And it all was fulfilled in Jesus. And that is our central doctrine. Right? Big complicated word. I know it confuses people and people go, oh, I don't want to hear about doctrine. Listen, it just means that this church stands on these truths. Jesus is God. He died for our sins. He died on the cross. He rose again from death. He was resurrected and beat death for us. And he closes with his righteousness so we can't claim anything of ourselves and we are given the promise of eternity with him. That's our central primary doctrine and that will not be changed. And nothing will be shoehorned into there either. Because there's plenty of secondary stuff that we can all have opinions on. Lots of stuff in Revelation we can have opinions on. Lots of stuff throughout, throughout the scripture that we can have opinions on and it's not wrong to have an opinion on. But whenever we talk about doctrine, let me just make it very clear. We are talking the same doctrine that the apostles talked about. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament and is going to still fulfill the promises that we look forward to now. And everybody and everything gets connected to God through Jesus. There is no other way. If we waver on this central doctrine, if we waver to that primary, primary and I would say, Salvation, that's what gives you salvation, this stuff that's locked in. These are salvation matters. If we waver on any of that, then we are laying ourselves open to all kinds of false teaching. Now, we've covered this when we've looked at the letters, and I, Jamie, Becker, uh, uh, Daniel, and Johnny did a great job of taking us through. I know it was a very broad view, 
but it was important to take the broad view rather than get tied down and twisted around with some of the stuff that they were actually tackling in the day and root out of that what it is they were centrally standing on. Because everything they told the believers was keep going with the faith. Keep going with what we've taught you. Keep going with the truth that Jesus is the only answer to all the scripture. Now, it's really important to understand that at the time that these letters were written, a group called Gnostics were generally in view when the apostles wrote their letters to the early church. The Gnostics set themselves apart as having some additional and superior knowledge. Jesus warns us in Revelation not to add or subtract from God's word in Revelation 22 verses 18 and 19 which is a direct acknowledgement of God's law, which is already given to his people in Deuteronomy 4, 4 verse 2. Do not add or subtract from these commands I am giving you. Just obey the commands of the Lord, your God, that I'm giving you. Now, we've heard a lot about false teachers in the last few weeks and the importance of knowing what it is that we believe. I hope that that has been useful to us in giving us a general footing to understand the world of Scripture. The early church was a confusing mix of Judaism from the Jews and from the Gentile arm, lots of local and national worship of pagan gods. And it's really important to bring some stable information into this mix to help establish a correct behavior and understanding. How else can we read things like the Council of Jerusalem where it tells how you should behave when you are approaching a Gentile brother who's coming in with all kinds of things from his pagan worship? And on the other hand, how do you equate Jesus fulfilling all of the Messianic promises in the Old Testament to the Jews? We need to have that information. I want us to see that this clear view of God and his relationship with us and our behaviour towards him is clearly seen in all scripture. I had a lovely evening on Wednesday visiting a home group. Uh, ours was cancelled due to illness. So, and we were posed a question that was our conversation starter which followed our look at the letters of 1, 2, 3, and 3 John and Jude which Becca took us through last week. And our conversation regarding why it's important to understand some basic principles helped to determine that we could open the Bible at almost any page and understand what we were supposed to understand. God is God and he acts as God. We are his creation, given responsibility for our actions and we are given the offer of restored relationship with God who loves us. God dwells with man Sin separated us from God. God demonstrated his desire to restore us back into rest. But sin needed dealing with once and for all. The obedience of man would demonstrate to Satan that God is good and worth following. But we fail at every turn. Until Jesus lived life as a man and didn't fail. That's what scripture tells us. If you want to look at it in this way, the Old Testament tells you of man's failing time and time and time again. But it also tells you that God chased man down. God wanted 
relationship. God wanted to dwell with his creation. But man kept failing. He could not do it. And Jesus, God himself, became man, went through all of the temptations that we have failed with and still continue to fail with, and he didn't fail. He lived a perfect life, and he died taking our deserved punishment on himself and then rose again to conquer death and Satan's hold over us. And now we have our promise of the return to God's created order and rest, what we look forward to. Once we know that Jesus is the revealed Savior, then everything else in Scripture starts to fall into place. Let's take an example. If we let our Bibles fall open in the middle, where would it open up to, generally? Psalms. Okay. What makes Psalms so special when we read them? Anyone? Easy to understand. Ooh. Psalms are easy to understand. Hands up if you think Psalms are easy to understand. I would go with you on that. Yeah. We might not know all the detail and circumstances, but Psalms are relatively easy to understand. Anything else? Personal. Anyone else want to raise their hand and say, yeah, Psalms are personal. When we read them, they're personal to us. You see, the thing about Psalms is when we read them, we recognize something of the emotion and the feelings that we experience in our own relationship with God. Have you ever read something in Psalms and gone, that's me? That's how I feel. I got up this morning and I felt so far away from God. I felt that everything was crushing me. I felt absolutely abandoned. And then halfway through the psalm, it goes, oh, but God, but God. And you go, oh, yeah, (laughs) he's still on the throne and he's still who he says he is. And actually, that makes me feel better because I know that I can trust in him. You see, Psalms, specifically Psalms, are written from us to God. Most of the scripture is written from God to man. God gave it to man to write down, this is my history, this is what I've done with man. And Psalms is actually a response from us to God. So we know that the Psalms were written by David and and various other people, but they were Prayers, praise, and laments of humans towards God. That's why we recognize our emotional responses to things like sin, our emotional cry out for help, and our need for a savior to help us. All of which points us to Jesus, because he's been revealed to us as the savior. Phil, Phil, uh, Phil Holster revealed to us on, sorry about this Phil, Phil revealed to us on Wednesday his favourite psalm as being Psalm 23. So let's put into practice a little bit of what we've just learnt. Okay, so I'm just going to, we've opened our Bibles, it's fallen open at Psalm 23, and so we're going to put into this a practice. So Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Okay, we'll pause there. We're told that the writer of this psalm is David. So we are expected to exercise some knowledge of him in order to understand what he's saying. 
And David spoke from his experience. What was his job? He was a shepherd. David spoke to us from his experience as a shepherd. And what's he start the psalm with? The Lord is my shepherd. Speaking from knowledge that he knew that the sheep that he looked after as a shepherd, when he was doing that job, experienced safety, experienced provision. He recognizes that God cares for his creation in the same way as a shepherd, as he can put into thinking, I looked after that flock. They were my responsibility. I provided for them. I kept them safe. If someone was attacking them, I guarded it. And he's putting it into things that we can recognize. You see, we have the ability to wonder and freedom to be ourselves. But it is God who provides our safety and our well-being. Even when life's at its toughest, the honor, as we've already said this morning when we started, the honor is always directed to the shepherd who looks after the sheep. We should be reminded that God gave Adam and Eve a perfect place to live in friendship and relationship with him. As long as they were obedient and stayed within set boundaries, they had everything they would ever need. It was God's good pleasure to provide all that they needed, and it's God's good, good pleasure to provide us with all that we need. And it's our responsibility to give him honor for that. Using the literal title of shepherd helps us to picture God's care, protection, and provision for us. So let's continue. Verse 4. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect me and comfort me. So if, there's, you know, if, we, didn't, if we wanted to just make that plain, what we've just said, there it is. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, even when I'm kind of separated or I'm feeling that I'm just, I've let you down or I feel that God's not there, or even contemplating, as David did in many situations, death itself, when he was being chased, when he was hiding in a cave, when there was lots of things happening to him. There's something that we recognize in these verses. Our life is short and ultimately we will confront death. Death that has come about because of disobedience. But even in this, God remains faithful to us. Not only is God faithful, but he persists in blessing us. Even in our disobedience, he pursues us and blesses us. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever kind of gone, God, why have you given me such rich abundance of blessing? Because you know my heart, and unfortunately, I know my heart as well. So I don't deserve this. So why are you giving it to me? Why do you abundantly bless me even in my state? And David was voicing this. Verse 5. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. All the days of my life, David says. 
It's easy for us to focus on the wrongdoings of David's life, isn't it? We, it's there in Scripture for us. Scripture does not hide it. It doesn't say, oh, David, by the way, you know, we'll just, let's just not put in the pages that are given for you to read all the bad stuff he did. The Bible's very honest and very open and says, no, this is, this is David's life. Here it is. So when we read a psalm, we can understand it from our perspective as well because what we just recognize in ourselves, we get blessings that we don't deserve. And David's saying the same thing. I get blessings and I don't, I don't deserve these. So we can concentrate on the wrongdoings of David and his life, his murder. Not his murder, but the murder he set out to, 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 to bring about. His adultery, his deceit. And yet he proclaims to us through it all that God has pursued him, forgiven him, restored him, and blessed him. Wow. Isn't that us? Isn't that how we should approach God? Now, before we head out this afternoon with thoughts of being able to get away with anything, this was never, God's, uh, never David's intention. He simply was recognizing the truth of God's Wonderful love. In Psalm 103, which is my favorite psalm, he will state that in verses 10 and 11, God does not punish us for all of our sins. And he does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. You see, the whole point is that we do deserve punishment and death. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. And he goes on to say that our iniquities, our sins are forgotten and forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Now we also know something else about David. We know that David was honored for having a heart after God's. But this seems to be so out of character with his actions, doesn't it? All of the things that we just we know about his life, how can God even possibly say that he had a heart after his own? Until we see the basis for this, as David finishes Psalm 23. So the second half of that verse that we read before, we a well-known ending to Psalm 23. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and. I will live in the house of the Lord forever. The letter to the Hebrews describes the hall of fame of faith as being those that believed God's promises to them. David believed in God's promises as a promise of a savior. God had promised abundant eternal rest. David realized that he would be the benefactor of God's provision of a savior. He held on to it. All through his life, he held on to that. He repeated it. He understood it. He had faith in God's promises and provisions. He had a heart after God's. He would live in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because he believed who God was and who God said his promises were spoken over him. That he would have a savior. Believe in me. And David did. Did it stop him? Failing in life? No. But he believed. That's why it's so important to hold our central belief system and hold on to it. God is good. 
You see, David was tested and he failed many times. But nevertheless, a casual reading of the Psalms brings us to the realization what true repentance looks like, even in those failings. David was never shy of saying, I'm sorry. God, I got it wrong. I messed up. I don't deserve your goodness. Don't deserve you pursuing me. I don't deserve your blessings. But thank you for them because you give them to me. Today, we live out the reality of failure because of human nature. We have a fallen human nature. But we have blessings because of our faith. Our faith is no different to David's. It's our confident hope. It's our joy in all circumstances. It's our full comprehension of God's story from the beginning to the end. Jesus is our promised Savior. He fulfills all and will fulfill all of God's promises throughout Scripture. That's why we can take communion and have such a joyous time thinking about what Jesus has done for us. It's not morbid. It's a celebration of what God's done. It's a celebration and recognition that even in our fallen state, God provided for us. We can truly say that by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. And by the sign of the Holy Spirit living in us, challenging us and changing us, so that we can have complete assurance of the return of perfect relationship and eternal life as God once again dwells with his creation. God never breaks his promises. And we can stand in them, even when we think we've failed, even when we think we're far from God. So I've got a quote that I just want to end with. I'm just going to leave it hanging there before we go into communion. And this is a quote from J. Hudson Taylor. He says this, There are three great truths. First, there is a God. Second, that he has spoken to us in the Bible. And third, he means what he says. He means everything that he said to us. We are free. We are restored. Our relationship is back with him if we trust and believe in Jesus as our Savior. He has provided everything we need and we can do nothing of ourselves. God is good. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.